Good morning. Our sermon series, uh, Easy Yoke, is based on the passage in Matthew 11 that you see up on the screen. We're actually going to get the verses up there here in a second. It says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, what I happen to be learning from Jesus right now comes from a racial reconciliation group that I've been a part of this summer. But I don't feel adequately equipped to explain what Jesus has been teaching me in this area because I'm right in the middle of it and I haven't had time to process it yet. So what I'm going to be doing this morning is sharing with you what I had been learning from Jesus the past year prior to this summer. Um, By the way, if you're interested in joining a racial reconciliation group and exploring how your faith and race relations in the United States should affect one another, there'll be an opportunity for you to do so in the upcoming weeks. Just keep an eye and ear out for the announcements about how to join a racial reconciliation group. The first thing that strikes me about these verses in Matthew 11 is it seems to me that Jesus picked the wrong word. Wouldn't it have made more sense for Jesus to have said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest? Climb into my hammock. If I need rest, I think I would have preferred the offer of a hammock to the offer of a yoke. I mean, after all, a yoke is an instrument of work. But I suppose that may have been part of the point Jesus was trying to make. And once I get past the fact that Jesus offers a yoke and not a hammock, The second thing that strikes me about this passage is what it says about my position in relationship to Jesus. Usually when we think of following Jesus, we think of him out ahead, blazing the trail, us desperately trying to follow along in his footsteps, trying to match them. And that's a good metaphor at times, but that's not the picture that Jesus is painting here with his words in Matthew 11. In this passage, he pictures himself and me linked together in a yoke like two oxen or some other work animals. In this metaphor, it's our close proximity to one another and the partnership that Jesus is offering that's being emphasized. And what I've been learning for the past year or so has to do with my relationship with Jesus. And you've probably forgotten about it, but remember when the coronavirus shut everything down? We've all forgotten about that by now, right? When Governor Polis' stay-at-home order took effect uh, over a year ago at the end of March 2020, I, like so many other people, uh, stopped going to work. My job doing security at a school was no longer needed as the students and the teachers all went online and stayed at home. Uh, So with that extra time, I decided to pull a book off my shelf that had been very helpful to me years ago and reread it. That book was Knowing the Face of God by Tim Stafford. That's the original version on uh, the left, and on the right, the revised version. The original subtitle was The Search for a Personal Relationship with God. But when a revised version came out several years later, the subtitle was changed to Deepening Your Personal Relationship with God. I'm going to be talking about this book for the next couple of minutes, but first I want to point out I'm only talking about it to provide some context for my answering the question, what am I learning from Jesus? My purpose today is not to convince you how great this book is or how great an author Tim Stafford is. My purpose is to share what I've been learning from Jesus about my relationship with him and with God. It just so happens that Jesus used this book to teach me some of these things. 
So Knowing the Face of God first came out in the summer of 1986. I had just finished my uh, second year in seminary, and before that, I had just completed my bachelor's degree with a Bible major. So when Knowing the F Face of God first came out, I'd been learning a ton of information about God for the previous four years. The reason I fell in love with this book back then was because it integrated all that knowledge about God with what it meant to know God personally. Somewhere in my life, just as has happened in the history of the Christian church, knowing God and knowing about God had branched out and separated from one another. So knowing about God is called theology. Back in 1986, when I first read this book, I'd been getting a lot of theology from college and seminary classes. Knowing God is having a personal relationship with him. Historically, that has been referred to as piety, or perhaps a more familiar word for you might be spirituality. Back in 1986, I had already had 14 years of experience of knowing God. Both my parents had been followers of Jesus from before when I was born. I was in church most every Sunday of my life, and I cannot remember a time when I did not know that Jesus was God's Son come in the flesh, and that he died on the cross to forgive the sins of the world. But when I was 10 years old, I came to realize that knowing those things, or being born into a family that believed those things, did not necessarily mean that I had a personal relationship with God. Those things were merely knowledge about God, the left-hand column. When I was 10 years old, I asked Jesus into my life, although I had probably done that several times before, and I made a deliberate decision to follow him. That's when my personal relationship with God started, the right-hand column. Theology, as most people think about it, deals with ideas and facts, while piety pertains to emotions and supernatural encounters. The two don't tend to get mixed very often in today's world. Knowing about God and knowing God are not the same thing. You can know quite a bit about God and still not have a personal relationship with him. On the other hand, you can't have a relationship with God without knowing at least a little bit about God, but your knowledge about him doesn't have to be very extensive. You can learn about God by reading the Bible or listening to sermons or talking with other people, but you can only know God by experiencing a personal relationship with him. No one else can do that for you. You have to experience it yourself. By the way, I'm not saying that the right-hand column is better than the left-hand column. One side's not better than the other. They're just two different things. Unfortunately, some people can mistake knowing about God with actually knowing him. For instance, we can imagine someone who knows so many facts about Joe Biden that they feel like they really know him. But if they show up to the White House and ask to be let in to talk with Joe, they're not going to get very far. As I was saying earlier, I think the reason the book Knowing the Face of God resonated with me as a 24-year-old was the way it seamlessly wove these two columns, theology and piety, together. 34 years later, when I picked it up again in 2020, I remembered how much I enjoyed and learned from the book the first time I read it but I was genuinely surprised by how much more I liked it and learned from it some 34 years later. Those extra 34 years of learning knowledge about God and those extra 34 years of walking with God 
had proven to me just how true this book is. Now, I don't recall my exact thinking why, but last April, when I picked up this book off the shelf, I decided I was going to read a chapter a day instead of just plowing through it like the way I read most books. And when I got to the end, after reading one chapter a day, I decided to start over. And then when I finished the book a second time, I felt God was still communicating some things to me, so I jumped in for a third time. Somewhere between the third and the fourth times through last spring, it occurred to me that it might be a good idea for me to go through uh, this book with my Sunday school class that I teach here at Pulpit Rock Church. Now, that may not seem too radical to you, but it felt really radical to me because I hardly ever teach anything in my Sunday school class except for the Bible itself. But I ran the idea past the class members, and they were okay with it. So we started going through Knowing the Face of God at the end of September 2020, and we finished it just a few weeks ago. Once again, I'm not trying to convince you that Tim Stafford has uncovered some secret formula to deepening your relationship with God. I'm here to let you know that the Bible teaches that God loves you and wants to have a personal relationship with you. You don't have to read Knowing the Face of God to help you understand that. I also want you to hear from me, someone who's been trying to follow Jesus for the last 49 years, that it's been a real adventure. Not always easy, and at times incredibly frustrating, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Like I said, it took me almost a year to cover what's in that book in my Sunday morning class, but don't worry, I'm not going to try to cover everything that's annoying the face of God this morning. However, I would like to share a couple of things that Jesus has been teaching me during this past year or so. Now, the first thing comes from a chapter in the book that's entitled, The Commitment of Love. Now, the words commitment and love seem very appropriate for a book on relationship, right? Although I'm wondering if some of the guys here are thinking, the commitment of love, that sounds like a chick flick to me. But I would venture to guess that unless you've already read Knowing the Face of God, you wouldn't have a clue what the chapter entitled Commitment of Love is all about. So let's do a little experiment. But this is experiment is only for those of you who have not read Knowing the Face of God before. Those of you who attend the class that I teach and read this book this past year are not eligible to participate in our little experiment, sorry. For the rest of you, take a second or two and get in your head what you think a chapter entitled The Commitment of Love would be all about. You got it? Okay, by a show of hands, if you haven't read Knowing the Face of God, how many of you would have guessed baptism? Not a single hand. Baptism, that's right, baptism. Now you might be quoting Tina Turner right now. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What do love and baptism have to do with each other? And others you, of you are asking yourself, who is Tina Turner? <laughs> and just how old is this geezer who's referencing 38-year-old songs from 1983? Uh, for most of us, baptism is one of those theological, or the left-hand column, knowledge about God topics. And we have a harder time thinking about baptism as how it relates to our personal relationship with Jesus, the right-hand column. Tim Stafford helped me understand the personal relationship aspect of baptism by drawing an analogy between baptism and how his relationship had developed with his wife. 
in my own life and experience, it was only a couple of years after I first read Knowing the Face of God that I met my wife, Brenda. I went through the same steps of, or milestones with Brenda that Tim Stafford had gone through with his relationship with his wife. So I'm gonna have those up here on the screen for you. Specifically, the first step came with the growing realization that I loved Brenda. And as significant as that step or milestone was, it went to a whole nother level when I told Brenda that I loved her. And those two steps seemed really big at the time, and of course, in their own way, they are really big steps, but they were completely overshadowed when on December 30th, 1989, I stood up in front of hundreds of people and publicly declared that not only did I love Brenda, but I intended to spend the rest of my life with her. I have a picture from that day. Although you, you probably could have guessed that was from our wedding day, right? It's not very often that I put on a tux or she put on a wedding dress, only on really special occasions, like when we were going out to McDonald's. So what does all this have to do with baptism? Although the steps will look differently in every person, everyone who has a personal relationship with Jesus will end up going through similar steps. First, they hear or read that God loves them. For some people, it's like a switch flips, and they suddenly realize that they love him back. In other people, it may, they may begin as skeptics, and it takes years before they come to realize that not only does God love them, but they love Jesus back and want to follow him. After that first step of admitting to themselves that they love Jesus, they may move on to the second step of telling God and or telling Jesus that they love him. For some people, that may be the end of the road. But Jesus and other voices from the New Testament tell us that it's important to publicly declare our love for Jesus before other people. And that is what baptism is. It's a public declaration of our love for Jesus. And like a wedding ceremony, baptism traditionally includes a promise to follow Jesus for the rest of one's life. Now, Paul mentions baptism in Ephesians 4. There he writes, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is part of Paul's call to the believers in Ephesus to maintain the unity the Holy Spirit had created among them. The Holy Spirit's act of bringing them, all the believers in Ephesus, into a personal relationship with Jesus is what created that unity. God had made them from many people into one people. Now, if you know much about the history of the church, the irony of baptism bringing about unity among believers will not be lost on you. Unfortunately, through the years, Baptism has sparked fierce battles between otherwise loving Christians. Now, comparing baptism to a wedding ceremony works if you're talking about believer's baptism, which is the type of baptism Pulpit Rock Church has traditionally embraced. However, much, and in fact, the majority of the rest of the universal church has not followed the practice of believer's baptism, but has instead practiced infant baptism. Infant baptism, like the name says, refers to the practice of baptizing children who are too young to express for themselves whether or not they love Jesus. It's baptizing children, usually infants, 
who were too young to commit to following Jesus for the rest of their lives. It would appear then that baptism is something that divides Christians, not unifies them. I mean, if there's two different views of baptism, one side has to be wrong and the other side has to be right, right? Well, perhaps the two perspectives are not as far apart as it might first seem. If believer's baptism is analogous to getting married, infant baptism can be compared to a different lifelong relationship we experience, namely the relationship we have with our parents. Like infant baptism, we don't have any choice about being born into our family. And while technically a child born into a loving family does have a choice whether they'll accept their parents' love, it's not an equal choice. A child can choose to reject their parents' love and estrange themselves from their parents, but typically the children choose to embrace the loving relationship that their parents offer and come to love their parents in return. So whether we view baptism as the start of a lifelong relationship through a marriage or the start of a lifelong relationship through birth into a family, these two views on baptism have more in common than what separates them. And this leads me to the next thing that Jesus has been teaching me. Do you remember back in April when we started a sermon series here at Pulpit Rock through the letter of 1 John? Here's what I took from Jonathan's sermon earlier this year, back on April 25th. Nothing else matters as much as the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And what that means is Jesus is fully God, Jesus is fully human, and Jesus alone made a way to God. In the words Jonathan used that day, draw a circle around that. And for anything that falls outside of the circle, be respectful and kind. Well, baptism obviously is one of those things that falls outside of that circle about who Jesus is. I may not agree with someone who prefers infant baptism over believer's baptism, but if we agree that Jesus is the Christ, that he is fully God and fully human, and the only way to God, then we are both part of God's family, and we should not let our different perspectives on baptism keep us from behaving like brothers and sisters. So this is something else I've been learning from Jesus. Getting theological details right about secondary issues isn't nearly as important as loving and respecting my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that getting theological details right about secondary issues isn't important. I happen to think it is very important to try to get them right, even if they are secondary issues. I'm just saying that it, in getting it right comes in second place when compared to the importance of loving and respecting my fellow believers. So I'd like to share one more thing that I've been learning from Jesus. But first, I'd like to ask you a hypothetical question that comes from an illustration out of the book, Knowing the Face of God. Suppose you're 16 years old and practicing basketball at a hoop set up in your driveway. You're all alone shooting baskets when an angel appears to you and proclaims, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. In just a couple of years, you're going to win Rookie of the Year in the NBA, or if you're female, the WNBA. The angel continues, you will go on to be regarded as one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Now suppose the angel convinces you that this promise is absolutely true and that it is gonna happen no matter what you do. Here's my hypothetical question. 
will you now practice basketball more or less than you had before? How you answer that question is probably going to depend a lot on why you were out shooting baskets in the first place. Had it been a lifelong ambition of yours to perhaps play basketball professionally someday? Or did the angel just happen to catch you on a day when you were bored out of your mind and you were just shooting a few hoops until a friend could come over and you could go do something else? The answer to the question of whether you're going to practice more or less after you receive a guarantee of success boils down to this. Do you really love playing basketball? Remember that picture of the oxen linked together in the yoke? Jesus promised us that anyone who wants to join him in his work can do so. Jesus promised that we can be joined with him. We can be in a personal relationship with him. Jesus told us that being with him is the only way we can have a personal relationship with God himself. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you think guaranteeing someone that they will be a basketball rookie of the year is an audacious promise? It's actually pretty small potatoes compared to the promise of having a personal relationship with the creator of the universe, the maker and lord of everything that ever was, that ever is, or that will ever be. Not only that, but we're promised that that relationship with him will not end when we die. Instead, we will live eternally and be able to enjoy our relationship with God and Jesus for eternity. Now that is a mind-blowing promise. Yet, after living with that promise and the idea of it for a few years, even experiencing a personal relationship with God can become mundane to us. We get so used to the idea of having a personal relationship with him, we no longer get excited about it. So now I have another hypothetical question for you. Is that promise of having a personal relationship with God and living with him for eternity going to make you work harder at your relationship with God? Or is it going to cause you to just coast through this life? Now, someone might object to the idea of working hard on my relationship with God. After all, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And it is true that there's absolutely nothing we can do to deserve a personal relationship with God. God has already done everything that needs to be done so that we can have a personal relationship with him. He sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty of our sins which separated us from God. But that doesn't change the fact that maintaining and growing personal relationship takes hard work and sacrifice. Now, whether we're talking about a marriage or a friendship or our relationship with God, any relationship isn't going to grow closer and deeper if one of the persons in the relationship is selfishly choosing only what he or she feels like doing in the moment. Jesus says to us, Come share my yoke with me. We can go through this life together, you and I. One day you will get to see me face to face and we'll live in my Father's house forever. Those promises that he has made to us are clear. Those promises are guaranteed. Those things are going to happen and there's absolutely nothing we can do to stop them from happening. 
Now, for some people, that's great news. No longer have to worry about God's judgment or being sent to hell when they die. It frees them up to spend their lives doing the things they really care about, whether that's making money or becoming admired or outdressing their neighbors or hunting and fishing. Just like the basketball player who doesn't really love the game and therefore the promise of future success doesn't cause him or her to practice more, these people do not really long for Jesus. So the promise of meeting him in heaven has little effect on their lives. In contrast to this, Tim Stafford wrote this about the promise of a relationship with Jesus and the effect it should have on the lives of those who long for God. But the promise should have a far deeper effect on those who long for God. It should catch and hold their attention, forming a burning, joyful expectation that overshadows everything else. If they really believe that Jesus is coming, and I'm not sure most do really believe it, it should make Christians devote themselves to love because they believe that the king of love is coming. This is what Jesus has been teaching me. He invites me to come alongside him in his yoke. He has a specific plan for my life, but he's not just saying, I have work for you to do. He's saying, I will be there alongside you, helping you accomplish what I have planned for you. But getting the work done is not even the most important thing. The most important thing is simply being side by side with Jesus, getting to know him better and better. The thing that Jesus promises me and you is himself. The Apostle Paul, near the end of his life, shared this same perspective. He wrote in the letter to the Philippians, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him as death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul continues, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul ends that passage by calling us to hold true to what we have attained. What's he talking about? What is it that we have attained? The thing that we have attained is a personal relationship with Jesus. Knowing Jesus is a lifelong pursuit. None of us, not even the Apostle Paul, can say we've mastered it. Trying to build a relationship with someone you can't see and who doesn't speak to you in an audible voice can be trying and frustrating at times. Nevertheless, we do have the promise that someday we are going to be able to speak with Jesus face to face. Until then, there are many ways that Jesus shows himself to us through his word, through his people, through the Holy Spirit, through joining him in his work, 
and through many other ways as well. The question I ask myself is, how am I going to spend my time? Am I going to accept Jesus' invitation to join him in his yoke, where I'll spend time with him, working alongside him and getting to know him better? Or am I going to stop trying to get to know him better and just coast through this life and wait to see him when I die or when he returns? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to just coast and just wait. I want to lean into my relationship with Jesus and get to know him better and better. I don't want to just learn things about him, although that is an important part of getting to know him better, but learning new things about Jesus should just be the starting point. I want to spend time with Jesus, get to know him better, and deepen my relationship with him. And I can do that for me, but I can't do it for you. You have to do it for yourself. For that matter, you can't do it for anyone else either. No matter how much you love someone and want to see them in a personal relationship with Jesus, you can't do it for them. They have to experience it themselves. So are you ready to begin the lifelong adventure? Have you admitted to yourself that you love God? Have you told God that you love Him? And for those of us who have begun a relationship with God, does the promise that we'll one day see Him face to face simply free us up to spend our time and energy on our own pursuits apart from Him? Or does it motivate us to come and join Him and work on getting to know Him better here and now? As the band begins to play, we're going to give you a few minutes to reflect on those questions that are up on the screen. <laughs> 